welcome to Radical Math Talk, the podcast dedicated to the revolutionaries in math education. I'm your host, Kwame Sarfamensa, and on this podcast, I will highlight the incredible educators who are reshaping, redefining, and decolonizing the way that math education is taught in our schools. In other words, this will not be your typical math podcast. My goal is to center the stories and hidden truths that will not only ignite a cultural paradigm shift in math education, but more specifically, explore the multiple ways in which math can be used as a vehicle for social justice and anti-racist solidarity. So if you are ready for a math revolution like no other, then sit back, relax, and lend me your ears as we embark on this journey together. Enjoy the show. Welcome to a brand new episode of Radical Math Talk, the show for the revolutionaries in math education. I'm your host, Kwame Salfamenta. And if this is your first time tuning in to the Radical Math Talk podcast, welcome for the first time. And I hope that today's episode is one that will have you coming back for more good content. And if this is your not so first time, you're a returning listener or viewer of this podcast, I welcome you back, and I hope that today's episode is one that you find informative, enlightening, and as always, insightful. So before we get to our newest guest, just a reminder for folks who are on YouTube, please make sure you hit the red subscribe button to get future episodes of our podcast, as well as other content from the Identity Talk Network. Uh, we're also on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all the audio platforms, so you can also subscribe from there. Um, and we do accept monetary donations for those who want to help us build this podcast and this network overall. It's growing each and every day, thanks to the generous contributions from our regular listeners. Uh, you could do that through Cash App or Venmo. So if you are doing it on Cash App, our handle is money sign ID talk for Ed. And if you are on Venmo, our handle will be at Kwame SM. That's at symbol K-W-A-M-E-S-M. And then, of course, you can catch past episodes of this podcast on our YouTube channel under my name, Kwame Salfamensa, or... You can go to our official website at identitytalkforeducators.com. Thank you so much. So listen, uh, the past few episodes, we've had some phenomenal people. But then again, we always have phenomenal people come on this podcast to talk with us about their stories and math and and what they do. So tonight's not going to be any different from what we usually bring to you all. We have here someone who, in my mind, is a visionary, somebody who saw an opportunity to reframe the way that math is done, whether it's through testing, through curriculum, through just the way that we teach it in our schools. And she had a pretty decent job before, you know, making a jump to just start her own thing as an entrepreneur, and we'll talk more about that. But her story is just amazing, and I'm just excited to have her come on to share her story. So listen, without further ado, I want to bring on Lisa Wang to the podcast to talk with us about her company, Almost Fun, and she'll get into what that actually means and how it connects to her bigger vision as far as how she sees math in our world. So let's bring Lisa on and we're going to get started. Hey, Lisa. Hi, Kwame. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. How goes it? It's going well. It's the start of the new school year. So we're pumped to be launching new resources, supporting students once more. Yeah. Pumped and I'm sure exhausted too. Let's let's keep it real. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think everyone in the education space feels kind of tired in the fall. Yes, of course, of course. But once again, thank you for coming on. And we have a mutual friend in uh, Marvin who who was raving about you. He was like, Kwame, you got to get Lisa on this podcast to, to talk about her company. And I said, all right, let me go ahead and check out this almost fun podcast, not podcast, the, the website. And man, I was, I was blown away just with the different tasks the different um, resources that are available there. And it's still building. It's, it's like a evolving library of just resources and tools, which 
we'll get more into later on. Uh, before we get to that point, I want to give you an opportunity to share your mathography. So here, we're all math people. We all came into the math game one way or another or fell in love with math one way or another. And we always want to I always want to give my guests an opportunity to just share how they first discovered math, why they're in love with math, why they continue to be advocates for math in the way they do and how it's been able to stay in their lives up until this point. So I want to give you a chance to just give us that chronological account of how math came to your life and why it's still in your life now. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that for me, my math story actually starts with my father, who he grew up in a very rural area of China. And he realized that he had this natural talent and understanding for math because he knew when his textbooks were wrong, even when his teachers didn't. And, and he leveraged that excitement and that passion for math to come to the U.S. in search of better opportunities, better education. And I think for me as a kid, I, I had this love-hate relationship with math where I really wanted to have that also that natural talent and understanding of math. But I often struggled within class. I think we did a lot of those rocket math timed worksheets when I was a kid. And those really were not that effective for me in learning and understanding math. And where I really fell in love with math was kind of the supplementary instruction that my dad gave me outside of the classroom. We did a lot of like riddles and puzzles. He would draw things out for me, help me really visualize math. He was big on analogies and he, he would explain things to me using experiences that I had had earlier in the day or at some point in my life to help me understand the math skill. And I think that really sparked a lot of joy in me. And then when I see that in students now, whenever I see a student go from feeling very frustrated to having that aha moment and to feeling empowered to be creative and explore different ways of solving a problem, I just think that's such a magical moment. And it's something that I try to help every student who comes to our platform find and, and experience. Cool, cool. And I know for some of us, we may not be fortunate to have a parent who has that strong interest in math or has the ability to even help their children in math at that level. So if your father didn't have this love for math or this interest, how do you think your schooling in K-12 would have been as far as the math contest is concerned? Yeah, I mean, I think about that a lot because I see students now who have a lot of anxiety when it comes to math. When they see a math worksheet, they see a math problem, it's immediately stress. And I think that would have been me as a student. And I think I would have been part of the 93% of adults who experience a lot of anxiety and stress around math and who don't want to do any job or career that's related to math because there is that stress around it. And I think that would have been me because I think a lot of elements of the way that I was taught math and that a lot of students are taught math today is focused on memorizing definitions, drilling practice problems. And if you get them wrong, then you're bad at math. And that's just so damaging to a student's confidence in their math learning identity. And that would have been the case for me. Now, I know that after you finish high school, you end up going to Harvard. So spend a lot of time in the greater Boston area teaching there. And everybody knows about Harvard, big time Ivy League school. And of course, you say you alma mater's Harvard. All of a sudden, people have the assumption like, oh, wow. No, you must be brilliant. You must be great. But then you even mentioned in your own math journey that you had your early challenges before your father intervened and, and gave you that support so that you can have this sustained love for math, which then carried over into your undergrad at Harvard. So why don't you just tell us a little bit about your time there and how you were able to, to really continue that relationship with math? Yeah, I think that there's two really interesting things about college level math. I think the first is that as you get into higher levels of math, you start to be more exposed to the creativity that lies in math. I think in K through 12, math often gets this bad rep of not being a very creative subject area, not being something where you can explore. And that's definitely changing more and more now, which I'm really excited to see. But I think in college, as you get into higher level math, there is more of that emphasis on exploring different ideas, not always doing you know, the rote steps, but seeing if there's a different solution, which is a very creative mindset. I think the other aspect is that math has traditionally not been a very inclusive subject area. 
in K through 12 or in higher level math, where there's not a lot of, there weren't a lot of women in a lot of my classes. There weren't a lot of people of color in a lot of my classes. And you start to just realize that that pipeline issue that starts with access in K through 12 is really affecting who's able to pursue math in college. And then it affects, you know, the types of achievements and the types of explorations and findings we're able to have in math because different experiences, different backgrounds, that's what brings innovation within any topic area. And we lose that in math when it is not inclusive and when we're not giving, you know, diverse people opportunities to pursue it. Now, I was a math major in my time in college, and I'll be the first to admit, I admit this on every single episode, if you follow, that I had my struggles. I mean, I was probably an average math student. I think my major GPA is probably like a 2.3, 2.4. So that translates to about a, a C, C minus if we're looking at letter grades. And it wasn't for lack of effort. I mean, I did all the classes. I did the differential calculuses, all the calculuses, the linear algebras, number theory classes, you name it, discrete math. I did it all. And I always believed that my struggles happened because I didn't have the strongest math foundation leading up into college. I was a great math student, but I always wonder, and this is probably a general question though, do you believe that if we were to bring some of those core math courses that we take during our first couple years in undergrad and bring them into the high school stage, that will make a difference in terms of math achievement? I don't know. I want to get a sense of what you think. Yeah, it's an interesting topic of discussion. I know that especially in California right now with the changes in the curriculum, they're actually thinking about delaying the introduction of certain topics, particularly within higher level math, so that it's not as overwhelming for students. And in my personal opinion, I think the earlier that we introduce concepts and ideas to students, the better. I do think though in K through 12 right now, we try to cover too many topics in a given year. Teachers are forced to jump around a lot, get the chance to dive deep into concepts. You know, a lot of students, they get to high school or they get to college and there's still not a solid understanding of what a variable is or how to add and subtract fractions. These foundational skills that if you're not able to master really harm your ability to progress forward in math, they need to be revisited and they need to be dug deep into. I guess my perspective really is that we should try and integrate more of higher level math and that perspective into K through 12. At the same time, we need to give teachers and students the opportunities to dive deep into concepts instead of just giving them that surface level approach. But do you believe that the surface level approach that so many teachers take to math has to do primarily with this high stakes testing culture that we've been in? Well, even going back to just implementation of NCLB and up until this point. Yeah, definitely. I I think that teachers are on the hook so often for their state standardized tests to cover so many different concepts in a given year, so many different problems that students are going to face. And that does, that impedes their ability to dive deep into any given topic. And they're also not then given the professional development that would help them and empower them to do so. I think that standardized testing has played this really unfortunate role in the way that we think about math in that the more it is focused on this objective right or wrong answer, the less time we're able to spend really understanding the concepts, the less time we're able to spend celebrating brilliant mistakes that students make, show some level of understanding and and some level of intuition, but that is immediately kind of shut down by that red X or by getting something wrong. We're not able to celebrate those moments because of that emphasis on testing. And similarly, we're not able to cover topics as the teacher would want more in depth. They're forced to kind of move on very quickly to the next unit just to make sure they can get through everything in the course of the year before those end of year tests. Yeah, I mean, it impacts everything from the pacing to just the executive decisions that you make as it pertains to pedagogy, as it pertains to your instructional approach. I mean, there are so many factors that come into play, which I know we'll we'll get more into because I know that was a huge reason why you wanted to start Almost Fun. But before we get there, I want to make sure that we go ahead and introduce this next segment, which is show your work. So this is probably the most popular phrase that we hear in our math (laughs) classrooms every math teacher i know uses this phrase probably 
a zillion times throughout their career. Students come to their desk with work that they need to have graded. They pro- they don't have a whole lot of mathematical evidence on this. It's just pretty much an answer. You see it, and then you just tell them, all right, you got to show your work. I need to know that you understand what I'm teaching. I need to know that you've truly demonstrated proficiency within this skill. Like, give me some kind of evidence. This is not convincing me that what's going on. And it's not that I believe you're cheating. I just need to know for myself because that's going to help me figure out what next steps are in terms of how I move forward with the lesson, with the curriculum. So in this context, when we say show your work, the work we're talking about is receipts. And you have a good amount of receipts. We mentioned Almost Fun being one of them, but you've done a lot of great work in terms of advocating for equity in the math space, making sure that we're elevating the voices and also giving our historically marginalized learners an opportunity to have success and be able to thrive in math just like their white counterparts. And that's something that's that's huge. And I want us to, you know, really get into that. So I know after you finished at Harvard, you spent some time in Google. Now, I have friends who work in Google and they tell me, like, it's a pretty different space. There's a lot of cool things that happen there. And it's one of those places where once you're there, you don't really want to leave. At least that's what most people tell me. And I know you were there for a few years and most people would probably stay there just given the benefits and everything but you you made a decision to to get out of that job to to start almost fun so i i want to know from you what were some of the lessons that you learned during your time at google that really gave you the fortitude to want to start your own entrepreneurship journey yeah definitely i mean i think a lot of the lessons that i i take from google are related to just building great product and how much time needs to be spent at each stage of that process of spending time with the people you're trying to build for understanding what they really need and not just what you think they need, doing that research and then crafting a a true product vision for what you want to build and then not stopping at launch, but collecting that feedback, understanding how to iterate, how to improve. I think for me, I loved building products at Google, but I wanted to build in an area that I was really passionate about, and that was in education. So I started by just wanting to better understand the communities that I wanted to support, which were students in low-income areas, under-resourced schools. And I started volunteering and, and working as a test prep instructor. And I think that really the biggest impetus for me to leave and to start Almost Fun was I would see my students who are taking the subway or taking the bus, you know, over an hour on Saturday morning to come to class. Clearly, there was that intrinsic motivation. Every student wanted to do well in school and and to be able to continue their education. But then the minute we put a math problem on the board or we handed out a math worksheet, it was almost like you could see a lot of students just deflate, like the anxiety that they felt was just so high that it prevented them from engaging. And I think realizing that tension of wanting really to work hard and do well, but not feeling empowered to was really profoundly sad for me. And it it reminded me of myself as a student. But I had, as you mentioned, that lucky intervention and privilege to have a father who was able to intervene. And that just became almost like a calling card for me of something that I wanted, that I believed I could have impact and support students in. And it just felt like I had to do it, that it was just something that I really wanted to create some support for and to really help students in some way. I started with those students that I was working with and just changing the curriculum we were using, making it feel more relatable, adding in jokes in the word problems, just doing anything I could to make it feel more comfortable, to make it feel like students could be themselves in this space, that they could bring their own questions, bring their own doubts out loud and not stressed and feel anxious just internally. And I just remember seeing these like gradual changes in my students and one student in particular who gave the name to our organization. She went from having her head on her desk to really asking questions, coming up with ideas, proposing solutions. And I I just remember her coming out of class one day and saying, Miss, that was almost fun, actually. And I was like, that is a perfect encapsulation of what we've been doing and what we're trying to do. Okay, so that's a perfect segue into the next question. (laughs) I was going to ask you about how you came up with the name Almost Fun because I'm looking at it. And as a math person, I'm thinking this is all the way fun. Just messing around with the different features, putting numbers in and doing the practice problems, looking at the different lessons. 
So I'm wondering, like, how is this almost fun? It's like 100%, 150% fun. So you just answer that for me. But but talk to me more about what else, if anything, inspire you to start Almost Fun? And what's the ultimate mission of your company? Yeah, I mean, it, it's funny because people do ask me why we don't just call the company, like, really fun math. I think the reality is that the students that we are working hard to support, their past experiences with math often are not that it's fun, that it is quite stressful or frustrating and, and not what they would choose to do given the wide variety of options that they could spend their day in. And so I think that if we called it really fun math, they would kind of roll their eyes and be like, this is just like any other resource that doesn't really understand what our experience has been. And I think by calling it almost fun, we give them that moment of, oh, maybe they get it. Maybe they get that my experience with math hasn't been fun, but maybe there is something that's better than what I've experienced and what I've been exposed to. And, and that's really what we hope to do for all our students. Our vision is just to ensure that every student has the resources they need to unlock joy and confidence within math, that no student ever needs to feel like they can't learn math, that they're not a math person, and that they have something to lean on anytime it feels like it's getting to that point. Anytime that frustration starts to feel like it's boiling over, they have a trusted resource, a trusted community that they can turn to for additional support. And we're really focused on middle and high school because I think that in elementary school, there is an emphasis on ex exploration and play within math of, of making things feel realistic, of manipulatives, of making everything feel a little bit more fun. But as we get into middle and high school math, that starts to go away and it starts to become more focused on memorization, more focused on definitions, more focused on abstract relationships that are difficult to really build an understanding around. And that's where we think we can add the most value because there isn't a lot that's available to students today. Now, I don't know if you've thought of this, but when I think about almost fun, I thought you were thinking about it in this manner. I think about how students get disappointed about how difficult math is. But if we let students know that, hey, with math comes challenges. So often we hear terms like productive struggle. Like, listen, you're going to have to work really hard and you're going to come through some some challenges. There'll be some barriers that will that you'll have to encounter, but you'll overcome them, you know, just by working hard. If we give them that disclaimer and we get them to a place where, you know what, I know it's going to be hard, but we're going to push through it and see the light of day, then we'll get to the fun part of it. So I was thinking about almost fun in that manner. I'm not sure if that was the intention when you named it almost fun, but that's what immediately came to my mind. That is actually a big part of it. And in our lessons, whenever something is pretty like quite tricky or quite difficult, we do, we're trying, we try to be very upfront with our students. I remember in class once, I made kind of the mistake of saying, oh, this problem we're going to start with is pretty easy. We should be able to walk through it rather easily. And I, I heard a student in the back kind of murmur, what if it's not easy? What if I can't do it? And I was suddenly very aware of the fact that a lot of the language that we use in STEM of like anyone can code and this is trivial, it can be so damaging. And what's much better is to be upfront. This is going to be a challenge, but we can do it. We're going to help you. We're going to support you. You might not get it right the first time and that's okay. We want to take the stigma out of making mistakes because mistakes are how you learn. If you get everything right all the time, then you're no longer learning anything new. And so it's actually kind of a gift to make a mistake and have that opportunity to grow and improve and build your resilience as a math learner and improve your math learning identity. And so that is a big part of it in our resources. What we try to do for our students is help them build that up. And I know I was guilty of doing this on a number of occasions because I care about my students so much. Like you don't never want to see a student struggling, failing, and you see those times where you have a problem that you give them. You can see that they're totally stumped. They're not sure where to go with this problem. And you go over there, you, you, you save them somehow. Maybe give them a hint. Maybe you, I don't know, reduce the, the rigor of the problem somehow so that they can access it better. But in the long run, you realize that's probably doing a disservice to that student because this is probably the challenge they need within reason, of course. So I know that's something that a lot of math teachers struggle with because yes, there will be challenges in math, but at the same time, it's the challenges that provide the best learning experiences because through those mistakes, that's how you're able to build your capacity. 
as a learner and if we can share that message to them then that's what's going to allow them to to really continue to push so yeah and i think part of it is that fear that students have of making a mistake not knowing where to start because they're worried it's going to lead them down the wrong path one right. reason i recently read about was instead of asking students what is the answer ask them what could be the answer and suddenly it feels a little bit more open-ended, like, oh, I, it's okay if I am wrong. It's what could be the answer, not there is an answer and that's the only one and I need to figure it out right now. I think there is a lot of reframing that we still need to do across curriculum, across resources to make that feel possible for students. Yes, a lot of, still a lot of work that has to be done with that. Now, I want to talk about standardized testing for a little bit because I know that was one of the major reasons why you wanted to start Almost Fun because you saw the inequities in terms of that arena. So I'm interested in knowing how Almost Fun levels the playing field for underserved <laughs> students who have historically struggled on standardized tests, whether we talk in yearly state tests. SATs, ACTs, you name it. Yeah, I, one of the first, so as I mentioned, I worked with students on test prep and we were really looking at SAT prep often. And I, one of those like moments for me where I, I just recognized how bad test prep resources often are, we were going through a problem and it was a word problem. And it was something about this is the rate it costs to rent a luxury golf cart if someone wants to rent it for a different amount of time, how much would it cost? And it just was so far on the realm of unrelatable to any of my students, to me of, I've never rented a luxury golf cart. I don't think any of my students ever had. It was just so unfamiliar. There was no element of that problem that students could hook onto to be like, oh, I at least understand this part of it. And I realized that when you think about a lot of problems in standardized tests, there's the context and there's the core skill. And if both of those are extremely unfamiliar for the student, there's nothing for them to grab onto of like, let me at least start here. And if we instead make that context really familiar for the student, it suddenly becomes a lot easier because they feel like they can do this problem. They feel like there's something about it that they understand. So the first library of content we built was basing all of our questions for SAT prep off of existing SAT prep questions, but changing the context. So keeping the core skill the same, but wrapping it in something that the students found more familiar. And for reading and writing, we found that to be really effective for students where being able to master and focus on this core skill, this unfamiliar core skill in a familiar context, then made it easier to make the jump to using it in an unfamiliar context and have instead of having both of those be unfamiliar at the beginning. Within math, what we found was that for a lot of students, there were so many foundational skills that they still had struggle with, that they still had not fully mastered, that even that familiar context wasn't really enough. It doesn't really help if you're working on a simplifying polynomials problem in its more familiar context, if you don't have a good understanding of variables, you don't have a good understanding of exponentiation. And so that was when we started to really think about what can we do within foundational math to make this feel more familiar, to make it feel more comfortable so that students are given that opportunity to really master these skills and not be stuck in this place of frustration. Now, I have a question about just the questions that students get on these standardized tests. And I've experienced it, you've experienced it, students we've taught have experienced it. Do you see in the future of Almost Fun, your company working with some of these testing companies like a Kaplan, like a Baron, ETS, to figure out, okay, here are a bank of questions that actually relate to some of the students that will be getting this test. Let's try to find a way to diversify the types of questions you put in there so that it's more equitable. I don't know if that's part of the future scope of work. Yeah, that's an area that we would love to be supportive in and to support organizations in being better about because I think we do have additional insight from the students we support. And I think the truth of the matter is when a lot of these companies do testing of their tests, they're not testing it with a representative sample of students. They're not testing it with students who are from across the country, different communities, different backgrounds, different socioeconomic levels. And I think it is a unique challenge. I remember one of my students who just like didn't really watch a lot of TV. And one of the essay questions she had was, what do you think the effect of reality TV is on society? She didn't know what reality TV was, so she she thought it was the news. So she she wrote her entire essay about the impact of the news on society. And so I think the challenge is that we can't make any assumptions about what the student 
is going to come in knowing. And given that, it does become hard to craft a test that is equitable and really does test the student on the core skills and not familiar context. And I, I think what needs to happen is really leveraging technology to make those tests personalized in a way where we can get rid of those unnecessary areas of friction for students. And I think that's a really interesting area that should be explored more and we hope to in the future. But I also believe that if we're not changing the way these tests are, if they're just staying as they are, let's look at other types of assessments we can give kids. Let's look at the formative assessments a little bit more closely. Let's put a little, a little bit more merit on those because teachers who are working with these students know them better than anybody yeah. outside the parents, of course. And they can give a better gauge of whether the student understands what's going on because they spend so much time with them. I just feel like when we put all of our eggs in one basket, whether we're talking the SAT, ACT, or the state test that's in the state that we're in, like you're in New York, so they're the regents. That's the test out there. But other states have their own test that's like a Super Bowl from September all the way to April. We have to make sure our students are prepared for that test. And then once the test is over, it's like, okay, we can relax. And then the kids start to relax. And that's really not how it's supposed to go because we're talking September. It should be September to June, but it's really September to April. And then those last couple of months is like, okay, you can do whatever you want because we're done with the main thing. Yeah. No, I agree. I think that also like students feel like they can kind of get rid of whatever it was they memorized for the test because the test's over. You don't have to think about it anymore. And then the reality is math builds on itself. So then you come back the next year, you don't remember the things that you learned before and, and it becomes that much harder to, to master new skills. I agree. We need better ways of assessing. We need better ways of assessing critical thinking really, I think is the key because the reality nice. is that there's a lot of aspects of math that students learn that they're not going to use in their day-to-day -day later. And I, I think really what we try to support students in building is critical thinking skills. How do you take a problem, figure out what you know, figure out what you need to know, and then use what you know to get there? That's really the core of math that we're trying to help students understand. It gets wrapped up in these like, do you know the definition of this specific term? Do you know how to what the formula is for this specific case? But really what we want to understand is how well are students building critical thinking skills, which will actually be what they're really using in jobs later down the road. And we just need a better way of assessing that. We don't have that right now. Personally, I'm more impressed with how a student's able to articulate either verbally or through writing and math thinking as opposed to how they solve it. That's just me personally, yeah. because if you're able to tell me, and I don't mean tell me as in you, you're able to tell me the formalized language. Like if you're not able to use words like algorithm, variable, coefficient, that's okay. But if you can explain it in a way that I'm able to access it and understand, that's good enough for me. That lets me know that you you know what's going on. What's up? I, I so agree with that because if you do look at like the leaders in our world now, they don't always solve problems. They're presenting problems in a way that encourage their teams, their communities, their companies to then solve the problem. And we're not really... We don't celebrate that as much that a student can take a situation and describe it well, describe like what is the problem in their own words effectively. That is really impressive. And I think it's something we should celebrate more. Right. And the fact that math is such a beautiful subject, I really believe it's a beautiful subject where you could have one problem and yet you can solve it in three, four different ways. There's a power to that. Like there is, there's something special about that that allows students to really build their, their critical thinking lens when they're able to have that kind of versatility. Because in life, if one way doesn't work, you gotta think of your plan B, your plan C, your plan D. Cause sometimes plan A is not gonna be it. I yeah, mean, that's definitely. just how life is. Yeah, my favorite moments with a student are when they find a different way to solve the problem that I never thought of. And they both I recognize how how awesome it is and it's exciting. And then they themselves recognize it's so empowering for them that they discovered this way of solving the problem. It's so much more magical than like, oh, I followed these four steps and I got to the right answer. It's like, OK, that's also great. But there is something really empowering about thinking critically on your own and figuring out a path to an answer independently that is different from what everyone else has done. And there are a lot of people, particularly on Twitter, who I follow, 
who pull up these math problems and it's like, okay, it'll be a real basic problem. Well, to us, real basic problem. And they're not looking for you to use the standard algorithm to solve it. They want you to really spell out how you arrive at it. Think, give us a more creative, a more innovative way of solving this very basic problem outside of the standard algorithm. And when I was doing it, I was like, okay, let me not be boring. Let me think of a way that I normally wouldn't solve it, but that shows that I know my math. And I'm looking at the, the thread of responses in the tweets and i'm like wow i never thought of doing it this way wow that's actually kind of cool i'm gonna steal that one like yeah this is what we should be doing with our students yeah we did a challenge actually in march we called it march mathness it's based around this thing called four fours where for each day of the month you could use four fours and any variation of operations to get to that number and we were collecting all the responses from students. And there were so many like super creative answers that we had never thought of. Like we tried to figure out some answers that we thought would be the most common ones, but there would be like so many different ways that students would think about solving these problems. I think that's like, there's so much creativity out there to be explored within math that we should make it easy for students to do so. Yes, there's a lot of cool stuff. And I think that's what's missing is the exploration, like you mentioned, the discovery, being able to come to an answer without being given the launch, without being given the three, four examples before you decide to jump in. I do, we do, you do. Like, we don't need to do all that. Like, okay, how about you just, I'm just going to give you a word. I'm just going to give you this problem. Sit with it for a little bit. I want to see what you come up with. Yeah, I think about this often. Like if, I mean, right now our curriculum is very much trying to work within the system a little bit to give teachers marginal improvement opportunities, ways that they can just, they don't need to spend a ton of time watching a video or like going through trainings, but they can just day one improve their classroom or students can day one start using. But I do really think about if I were given the opportunity to reframe math curriculum at large, what would that look like? Because oftentimes when we're working with students in enrichment, some of the best moments are when we just give them a riddle. Like one that I like to give students is you have three red socks, two blue socks, four black socks in your drawer. You close your eyes and you randomly pick some socks out. What's the minimum number you need to pick out to make sure you have a matching pair? They don't need to use any formulas. They don't need to use any like definitions. There's just logical thinking going on. And it's so fun because there's no barrier to them getting started. There's no barrier to that critical thinking. And we get so much good discussion out of it. So many different approaches that we can talk about. But what does that look like in a true framework and a true curriculum? And I'm not sure it's something that I, I want to keep thinking about and exploring with our team. All right. Well, even that riddle you mentioned, that's essentially a probability question. Like you could list it out. Some people will probably say, well, why just use the fundamental theorem, the fundamental counting principle? to figure it out. Obviously, yeah. if you're not if you're not someone who understands what it is, it's just going to go over your head, but you don't need the formalized exactly. algorithms to solve that. Like if you just said it, let let the kids figure it out themselves. Ultimately, they might discover something. I think that moment is so much more powerful than you just giving them the goods. Like let them come to it on their own. Definitely. Getting to an aha moment on your own is always more empowering than someone hand-holding you that way. Uh, always. Always so much more empowering. But I do want to stay on this topic with um, this conceptual mastery of math skills because we talk about this a lot. We grew up in eras where the focus was more procedural thinking. Step by step. If you follow these steps, if you follow this formula, if I give you this algorithm, 100% of the time, you're going to get this answer. It doesn't fail. But then we don't focus as much on the conceptual understanding or context of math skills. So from your perspective, how do you believe that conceptual mastery intersects with cultural responsive learning? And I know we touched on it a little bit, but I'd love for you to expound upon that a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, I think that the two pillars within culturally responsive learning that particularly have guided the development of our resources is one, using what students already fundamentally understand or conceptually understand to help them build understanding of the skill. And the second is to maintain high expectations of every student to not decrease the rigor or the, the goal 
level of achievement for any given student because you have lower expectation for them because you shouldn't. And so I think that those two together really do lead to better conceptual understanding because when you use what you already know, if you use the fact, if you use real life functions like vending machines or typing a URL into your browser, if you use that understanding to guide understanding or to build understanding of a mathematical function, it makes it that much easier to really understand it versus just trying to memorize that, you know, a function can be many to one, but not one to many. Memorizing that fact is different from understanding that if you put in a button combination on a vending machine, you will always get a well-defined drink or snack. That's different to me. And I think that when you're able to use that pillar of culturally responsive education, of using what students already understand to build understanding of this math skill, you naturally get to conceptual understanding of math. And that's what our approach is, is focused on. Awesome. Awesome. And then this is my final question before we get into lightning round. So what do you see is the future of almost fun? I think that people do ask me if we're going to expand beyond math, if we're going to expand beyond the U.S. To me, I think the task of really improving math learning for students in the U.S. is a gigantic task. It's something that so many people are working on. I think it's going to take a lot of time, a lot of research, a lot of community building to really start to move the needle effectively over time. So that's what we're focused on. That is our vision, is to really improve math confidence, improve math learning outcomes for underserved and underrepresented learners. Because I think the fact of the matter is the more privilege you have, the more opportunities you get from like tutors or from your parents or from any other available supplementary resource you get to build grit and to build confidence because you're given all these opportunities. Whereas underrepresented, underserved learners often not only don't get those opportunities, they're faced with external biases against their own abilities. That's a lot to focus on and overcome. And that's our main goal. That's what we're going to be focused on now in the short term and the long term. It's what we want to build towards. Uh, there it is. And, you know, that's going to be the future. And, and that's what we all got to do. And there's so many different organizations, so many different companies who are doing this math equity work with Fidelity. And they're doing just an awesome job. And I feel like we're going to get to a point where we're going to have a lot more learners thriving in the classroom than not. Yeah, definitely. That's my belief. And I think that it's going to come from cooperation. It's going to come from partnership of shared learning, shared resources, and really at the end of the day, serving our students first and foremost. Couldn't agree with you more. So we have our lightning round, which we always do to close us out. And this is really light. few quick hitter questions so that the audience can get to know you a little bit better. So first question I always love to ask my guests is, what do you do for self-care? Because you're carrying a huge load right now. I like to cook Chinese dishes from my family's like set of recipes. My mom and I are working on digitizing all of our family recipes. And so it's a really nice kind of task that I can do that feels fun and feels enjoyable, disconnected from work. And then I have really good food afterwards. And um, what's your favorite dish to prepare with your mom? I think right now it's this like soy sauce braised ribs recipe. It's really easy and then it's so, so good. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm envisioning it right now as you're describing. <laughs> ah, cool. If any, is there a book you're reading right now or plan to read in the future? I'm in a book club. We're reading a book called Gravity's Rainbow, which is a very dense read. I don't know yet if I recommend it, but that is the book I'm currently reading. All right, cool. Most difficult math concept to teach or learn? I think that two we see students struggle with a lot. I know you said one, but the two are adding and subtracting fractions and then really understanding what a variable is. We actually, we do get students who don't think of like X equals as the answer is versus like this is a relationship between a variable and the other side of the equation. And that's something that we're constantly trying to improve on is helping students understand math is a language of relationships, not a language of just definitions. And I think that's a hard thing to get to and to build if so much of what you've done is memorize definitions. And then with regard to adding subtracting fractions, is it the fact that you have to have like denominators that give students problems like 
what's the issue with that? I think actually we can get to understanding that you need like denominators, but it's remembering how to get how to then do it, how to then get your two fractions to have like denominators that we, we struggle with with our students sometimes. Because part of that is it does get to be a little procedural. And I think that's a balance we strive to do on our in our resources is like focusing on the conceptual understanding, but also being real with our students that sometimes there are these steps that you need to follow in order to complete the task and wanting to give them the flexibility to do that anyway that they may find. There's a lot of ways to get to common denominators, but also giving them the tools and easy strategies that we know exist. And I think that part does come as a challenge is just knowing how to get to the common denominators. Yeah, because I know whenever I used to teach that, it's like, okay, these are unlike denominators, so we need to figure out what the least common multiple is for both those denominators. But if you don't know what a multiple is, and you you mix it up with factors, because this happens all the time, we always mix up multiples and factors. Now it's like, okay, let's rewind, because we need to differentiate what a factor is from a multiple. So this is the part that I know tears some some people's hairs out but it's like you gotta teach it yeah you cannot move forward if you don't go backwards but then it goes back to what we said about the pressures of testing and having to slow down our pacing in order to do what we know is right by our students which can then be at the expense of not following whatever schedule we have or schedule the district has for us in terms of the curriculum yeah 100 percent. yeah now what's your favorite math concept to teach or learn oh i think it's definitely functions because i think there's it's so interesting because prior to learning functions students are seeing relation like linear relationships for example with like y and x oftentimes and then suddenly you have this new notation and it's pretty scary for a lot of students of like, oh, I don't know what these different parts mean. But then when they do get that understanding of this true relationship of inputs to outputs, seeing that kind of like find and replace throughout the function to then like apply, and then getting to explore all the different ways that they experience functions in their real life. I think it's one of those concepts that you can just find so many examples of in a student's life and they get that opportunity to bring themselves into the math learning experience that is so beautiful. It's what we want for students. Absolutely. And functions, it's not my favorite. So I taught middle school. So whenever Mm -hmm. we did function, it was always like intro to function. So of course we're talking about domain versus the range and I always used to give them the example of boyfriends and girlfriends that always got it for them <laughs> like listen if so and so if your friend is talking to two people and the two people don't even know about each other that's a problem yeah. therefore that ain't a function but if they're doing right by their by their partner whoever that is and that's the only person they're talking to one to one all right they're good. That's yeah. a function. And it's like, oh. <laughs> and then they'll get into these stories that I don't even want to hear. Tell <laughs> you know, this is eighth graders. So, and I don't have to go into much detail about what eighth graders are doing, particularly in these days. So, it's like, all right. I was just trying to get y'all to understand the concept of functions. I don't now need to know all that detail. That's it. Y'all keep those to yourself. <laughs> yeah. The one I like uh, that I recently heard from a kid was if you're playing a video game and one the jump button like 50% of the time jumps, but then the other time like crouches, it would be pretty chaotic. So you need a uh-huh. well-defined mapping of buttons to action so that like you can actually win battles. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yeah, that's always an interesting one. All right. This is my last second to last question, actually. If you can invite three influential figures dead or alive to dinner. Who would they be? Ooh, that's a good question. I think that I would love to have Sal Khan and just like talk to him about all that he's done with Khan Academy and, and building digital math curriculum and also just how he's thinking about the future of math from his platform's perspective. I think Zaretta Hammond and all the work that she's done within culturally responsive education has been so inspirational for our platform. I'd love to actually get to talk to her. And then I think to like nerd out a little bit. I think I used to hear, I heard the story when I was little of Fermat, how he had this theorem that he wrote in the margins, just like, this, this is so easy. I can prove it easily, but I'm not going to. And then it took 
the math community like years and years and years to actually figure it out. I would just want to ask him, were you trolling everyone or did you actually have this proof that's like really, really easy? I think those would be my three. I feel like they solved it on The Simpsons. That's what the <laughs> rumor has it that it was solved by Homer Simpson, but I could be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I got I to gotta check that out. <laughs> yeah, there was actually a video where they talk about Fermat's uh, theorem, how somebody solved it, and it, it appeared on the episode of The Simpsons. But I can't remember all the details, but it's on YouTube somewhere. Yeah, I'll look that up. Yeah, for sure. Lisa, this hour has been great. Thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. I've really had a great time chatting up with you. And before we get off, I want to make sure you have a chance to just share how they can, how people can connect with you on social media, but also where people can go to check out Almost Fun. Yeah, for sure. We are on Twitter, fun underscore almost. We're also on Instagram, Almost Fun Learning. We're going to start posting some riddles soon for students and for anyone who wants to try a math riddle. So check us out there. And then all of our resources are at almostfun.org. Our student-facing resources are free. Our teacher resources are available now for a subscription price. But if you don't have the capacity to pay, definitely reach out and we'll figure something out. All right. Sounds awesome. But Lisa, thank you again. And hopefully we can do this again real soon. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right. Have a good rest of the day. You too. Bye. 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 All right, y'all. So we're about to end another episode of Radical Math Talk. And as always, I wish you a good morning, good afternoon, good night, wherever you are in the world. And we're going to do this again another time. Peace out, everybody. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Radical Math Talk. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Anchor, Spotify, and all other streaming platforms. We are always striving to provide you with quality content. So if you love what you heard today, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And to check out the video episodes of the podcast, you can visit our website at identitytalk.com. For numeral four educators.com. I'll say it one more time Identity Talk for educators.com. Thank you and have a great day.